Well, good morning. My name is Roman Wally, and I am the college pastor here at Grace. Um, our college students, most of them, have not gotten back. Some of you guys are here. It's good to see you. Uh, but most of them are not back yet, so that means that I don't have to preach on Sunday nights, and I get to jump in the rotation, which I'm excited to do. Um, this is the third of four Sundays that we were spending looking at the season of Advent. Uh, for those of us who grew up maybe more in a traditional kind of church setting, we're familiar with Advent. For those of us who've maybe grown up in a Baptist church or in a Bible church, uh, it may be more unfamiliar. So just as a brief recap, Advent is this season that the church really throughout a good portion of history has celebrated that remembers the first coming of Jesus, his Advent. Advent comes from the Latin word adventus. I don't know if that's how you say because I don't know Latin. Uh, but that's where we get our word Advent. It's the first coming of Jesus that we remember, but then we also look forward to his second coming. Okay? This is always the posture of God's people throughout history. We look back and we remember what God has done to celebrate, to praise, to be encouraged, and then we look forward to what he still has yet to do with eager hope so that we might live faithfully now. This is the season of Advent. And so the first couple Sundays were focused more on the first advent of Jesus. Scott LeGraff opened us up by talking about God bringing light into darkness coming from Isaiah and how Jesus is the light who has come into the world to rescue sinners from their darkness. And then Keith followed him up on Christmas Eve and talked about how Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the son born from the virgin who would manifest the presence of God for those people who were separated because of sin. And so these are the things that Jesus has done. These are the things that we look back and we remember. But then last week, Michael Powell talked to us from Romans 8, looking at the creation that's longing for redemption. All creation groans as we groan for God's salvation to be made whole, to be made complete. We look forward in hope and in longing. And today, we're going to be talking about how do we live faithfully as we look forward, as we expect, as we hope God to finish his work. This is the purpose of Advent, is to shape us into a people who wait faithfully in hope. Throughout history, God has shaped and molded his people to be people who wait faithfully in hope. This is not a passive waiting. It's an active, purposeful waiting built on trust in God. And I've thought of a number of different ways to kind of bring that home for us, that season of waiting. I mean, our church is obviously in a season of waiting, we just hit the year mark where we've been through some pretty significant changes. And we're kind of at that point where we're like, okay, ready for this new pastor to come, ready to kind of move forward into the next stage, want to see what that's going to look like. We're in a season of waiting. So I thought about that. And then for me personally, this is a season of waiting. My sweet wife is pregnant. She's 16 weeks along. And so there's this constant regular reminder of I'm waiting and life is going to change pretty significantly soon. And there's a sobering aspect to that. Like, I'm thinking about being a father, and that's overwhelming at times. And yet there's this joyful, beautiful hope that I'm looking forward to. I think it's a son, and so I'm super excited, but I'm going to be really excited if it's a girl, too. Um, so there's that kind of season of waiting that I'm in. But then I was talking with Amy. It was really this morning. Um, and she reminded me there's this, I think marriage is a beautiful picture of what it looks like to wait faithfully. And so on the 28th, I got to do a wedding ceremony for a couple at this church that was, they're just beautiful people, and it was a beautiful privilege to get to do it. Um, and on that day, as I stood before them, and they're before me, and I'm seeing the crowd of people behind, I'm just reminded, marriage is a picture of what we look forward to. 
when God comes back, he's united with his people. There's joy and there's celebration. There's a feast. There's a party. And all things are made new. And at the heart of it is love. Marriage is a picture of what we look forward to, what we're hoping for. And so I got to be reminded of that, the consummation of that hope, what we look forward to. But then just in the past couple days, we sat down with another couple who is on the front end of that season, right? So we, we, we got to see the consummation, the marriage ceremony, but then we got to sit down with a couple who's just now engaged, and they're just now entering into that season of waiting. And they're a sweet couple that we love too, and we got to feel that sort of tension of that season all over again. You knew it. Like, if you're married, you know what that feels like to look forward to that day whenever you're going to be bound together with your husband, with your wife, and yet there's this kind of like, you know, want to be there. This is straining forward, this longing, this hoping expectation of being bound together with that person that you want to commit your life to. So there's this full hope. And then for believers, at the same time, there's this genuine serious, sober recognition that this is a season to live in faithfulness and purity, and that is hard, right? So there's this eager longing and expectation, and at the same time, there's this sobering reality. This is going to get a little hard in this season. And we're going to have to strive for purity, strive for faithfulness. This is just good to be reminded by them, and this is exactly where we are at. The church is in the engagement period. Jesus has betrothed himself to us. He has claimed us for God. And now we wait for that relationship to be consummated, for all things to be made new, for wickedness and evil to be purged, and for God to come back and dwell with us. This is what we are called to wait faithfully for in hope. So if you would, open up in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to dig into this text And we're going to see how Christians are called to wait with eager faithfulness for Jesus' return. 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to see how Christians are called to wait with eager faithfulness for Jesus' return. As you flip on over to 2 Peter chapter 3, I just want to build out the context of the letter real quick. There's really two emphases in this letter. It's a short little letter. Uh, And on the one hand, Peter is saying, hey, there are some false teachers in your midst. There's some guys that you need to be aware of who are greedy, they're living in sexual immorality, and they are deceitful. And by their living and by their teaching, they are leading, seeking to lead Christians astray. You need to be wary of them and reject them. Have nothing to do with them. And so he builds out who these guys are, what they're like, and how Christians need to be wary. But then on the other part, He's saying Jesus is coming back. He will return. And when he does return, it's a day of purifying judgment so that God would make everything new. In light of that, live faithfully. Be earnest. Be zealous. Live faithfully as we look forward to that day. So that's the context of the letter. Really, both of those things come together in chapter 3. We're going to see that Peter rejects these false teachers who reject the idea that Jesus will return. They reject that God will judge And then he builds out what that day will look like when Jesus does return. And so let's go ahead and dig into the first seven verses. Here's where we're going to see that Peter's telling Christians to reject these sinful false teachers who deny that Jesus will return. Pick it up in verse 1 with me. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. 
In both of them, I'm stirring up or seeking to awake you, your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers or the patriarchs fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were in the same way from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. These false teachers deliberately overlooked this, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, water and the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished or was destroyed. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So in this first section, Peter is saying that Christians need to reject these sinful false teachers. These, are, these guys reject the idea, they deny that Jesus will return on something called the day of the Lord. So let's go ahead and describe what that means, that phrase, the day of the Lord, and then we'll get into different parts of the passage. But if you take a look in verse 4, these guys, this is their rebuttal or their denial. They say, where is the promise of his coming? This is Jesus' advent, his second advent, his second arrival. They don't think that this is actually going to happen. So this is the context that Peter's talking in, looking forward to the return of Jesus. And if we go down in verse 7, Peter talks about the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. This is, again, talking of Jesus' return when he comes back whenever he uh, arrives. And then if you look at verse 10, we actually get the explicit phrase, the day of the Lord will come. And then finally in verse 12, it says the day of God. So this is woven all throughout the passage. Peter's big idea here is that Jesus will return on a day that's called the day of the Lord. So where does that come from? What does that mean? The day of the Lord is a phrase that's used throughout the Bible. It really finds its, its home in the prophets who over and over and over have told the people of God that God intervenes into history to do really two things to judge evil, and then to save and rescue his people. Over and over and over, God has intervened in history to judge and to rescue. And this is what the prophets throughout history have called the day of the Lord. So if we want to think about examples, you could think back, to me, back with me to the day when God rescued his people from Egypt in the Exodus. He drew them out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. And as they walked through onto the other side and the Egyptian army followed them, God then slammed the waters shut and destroyed the Egyptian armies. God is rescuing his people and he's judging evil oppressors. This is a day of the Lord in the past. And then over and over through the prophets, they're pointing at wicked nations and saying, the day of the Lord will come against you. Your wickedness, your oppression, your injustice will have its due the Lord will intervene in your situation. And he will do so in order to preserve his people. And yet the day of the Lord also comes towards God's own people. They're not immune to his judgment. And so there's this shift in the prophets where guys like Amos and then Isaiah and Jeremiah 
look at Israel and say, you have become like the wicked nations around you. You have thought that you were immune to the judgment of God. But if you go on continuing to oppress the poor, if you go on continuing to rebel against God, if you continue to worship false idols, God's judgment will come against you and he will rescue a remnant from you to preserve his plan. Over and over and over in the Bible, we have the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. We can even look at the crucifixion of Jesus as a mighty day of the Lord where judgment falls on him so that we might be rescued. Now, we look forward to the final big D day of the Lord at the end when Jesus comes back to finish the work that he started. This is the day of the Lord that Peter's talking about, the final big D day of the Lord, the day of judgment and rescue. This is what the sinful false teachers deny. They look at the world around them and they're like, everything looks normal to me. You know? Like you have this guy who's morally good over here and then you have this guy who's just regular old Joe Schmo doing what he wants to do and life goes pretty similarly for them. And in fact, you might even look at the guy who's doing whatever he wants and see that he actually has it okay. You know? There's no judgment that's coming. How foolish are you? This is what these false teachers are teaching and saying. And it's interesting that in their lives, their behavior matches up with that belief. Arrogant disbelief always fosters sinful living. So we could go throughout the history of philosophy and atheists who reject God. And often, if they would be honest on the day of judgment, they'll see that their disbelief is a barrier to protect their own immoral behavior. We see this here in these false teachers. Not all atheists are that way, but many, many throughout history who've made arguments against God are that way. So they're rejecting that Jesus will actually return. They look at the world around them as it's going on normally. Nothing catastrophic is going to happen because it's always been this way. They say from the beginning of the creation, from the days of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, things have continued in the same way. And Peter says, you don't know your Bible. You don't know the story that God has told us. Because if we were to go back to Genesis 6 through 9, there was a catastrophic world-destroying judgment that God brought. So if you look at verse 5, he says, they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. He's going back to Genesis 1-2. There's this watery abyss. God speaks and he orders and structures and fills creation out of water. And then he says in verse Six, by means of these, by the water and God's word, that the world that then existed was deluged with water and it perished. Genesis 6, God looks at creation after humans have rebelled. It's filled with violence. It's filled with wickedness. And it's corrupting his creation. And so with grief and turmoil in his heart, says, I'm going to wash this thing clean. And he brings a destructive, purifying judgment in the flood. Peter says, all things have not continued in the same way from creation. If you think that you've forgotten about the flood, and if we understand that God brings judgment like the flood, we look forward and we recognize that God will bring another destructive, purifying judgment, but this time it will be with fire. And this is how he describes it. Verse 7, But by the same word of judgment, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, <clears throat> being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So here, Peter parallels the destruction of the flood 
with the destruction that will come when Jesus returns. We shouldn't understand this as a annihilating, completely utter destruction of everything that God has made. We'll talk about this a little bit later on. This is a purifying judgment that comes. But it is described as flames of fire that comes from Isaiah and different texts from the prophets. But in the same way that God purged the world with water, he will purge it with fire when Christ returns. This is the day of the Lord. And so now, in verses 8 through 10, he's going to say, this will come. Like, have no buts about it. This will come, but there's a delay because God is patient. There's a delay because God is patient with you and with me. Let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. His perspective on time is different from ours. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will be unexpected. And the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed, or they will be laid bare before God. So the day of the Lord, Peter says, absolutely will come at unexpected time, but it's delayed now because God is patient. The way that Peter describes this delay is by referring to Psalm 90, verse 4. This is where he says, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years can be as short as one day. The way that the eternal, timeless God experiences time is so different from us who are time-bound creatures. And so for the early Christians... At the least, it's been 30 years since Jesus has died. And in the ancient world, that's about the expanse of a lifetime. And so they're starting to feel like, okay, what's going on here? I thought Jesus said this thing was going to come soon, and it's been a generation now. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily believe these false teachers, but how do I make sense of this delay? And Peter uses scripture and says, your sense of time is far different than God's sense of time. And what seems so long to you as a small temporal being is so short to him. So he explains the nature of that delay by saying God's timeline is different than ours, but then he explains why God delays. He said, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The delay of God's judgment is his mercy and his kindness to draw men and women to himself. This is true of people within the church, and it's true for people outside the church. There are people that God is waiting to come to repentance, and he's delaying his judgment because he's kind, because he's merciful. He doesn't delight in judgment. He doesn't delight in destroying people. He desires them to find life by trusting him, and so he holds back the day. And then Peter says that the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly. If you take a look, <clears throat> where is it? Verse 10, he says, but the day of the Lord certainly will come, and it will come like a thief. Just a brief note here, this is used over and over from Jesus himself and the rest of the apostles. They, they use this language in order to say that it's going to come at an unexpected time. And so some of you are like, oh no, we're talking about end time stuff. This is where things get a little squirrely in churches. I'm a little bit uncomfortable here. One of the errors that Christians have made over and over and over is by trying to predict 
and calculate dates. Jesus himself has said you can't do that. So let's just listen to him and know that it's going to come. And in the meantime, let's live faithfully. Don't get distracted by these weird calculations and graphs of the stars and examination of political events. Like, don't get caught up in that. We cannot predict the time or the day, but we have been given instruction on what to do now, and that's to live faithfully, to wait for his coming. At the end of verse 10, Peter says that this burning fire that's going to happen, it's going to expose the works that are done on the earth. You might have a different translation in your Bible, something like destroyed or pass away or disappear or something like that. Um, this might make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, if it does, just come talk to me after service. It shouldn't make you feel uncomfortable. If your translation says something like that that's been inserted by an editor, the best translation is that it will be exposed. Those works will be exposed. So if your translation says something different, uh, the best translation is that the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. What this is saying is that God's purifying judgment comes in to lay bare this creation and all that's been done on it that people have said, God doesn't care about this. God's not going to do anything about this. I'm the ruler of my own fate. God will lay that bare and then wipe it away in his judgment. So when we think about these fires that come when Jesus returns, we should really think more along the lines of smelting. How many of you guys have smelted some ore recently? I figured more of you would have. Uh, so uh, whenever you are trying to get ore, some sort of precious metal out of the ground, typically that doesn't come straight out in its pure form. It comes mixed with dirt and sediment and rock and all sorts of stuff that you don't want. And so to get to the precious metal, you have to apply intense heat and burning in order to melt what's called the dross away. And what's left is the pure and the precious metal that you're actually concerned to get. So intense heat and fire is applied so that what's valuable, what's good, is maintained and preserved and strengthened. This is how we should understand understand the fires of God's judgment. He's not destroying everything that he's made as if what's physical is bad. Let's get rid of that idea. God loves his creation. He's rescuing it. And the fires of judgment that he brings destroy what is evil, what is corrupt, and leave what he intends to purify and renew. Okay? Okay. I'd love to talk more about that, but we've got to keep on going. Let's take a look at verses 11 through 13 and close this thing out. Peter here just simply says, because the day of the Lord is coming, Christians are to live and wait faithfully. Verse 11. Since, because, therefore, all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for, longing for, and hastening the day? Oh, I'm sorry, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the first thing to notice, verse 11, it opens up with that logical connector, since, because, therefore. What Peter is saying is all this teaching about Jesus' end time return, all this teaching about the day of the Lord has extremely practical implications. Jesus is going to return. Therefore, that affects how Christians live on a daily basis. So if any of us have ever felt like, 
eschatology or study of the end times or focusing on what will happen according to the Bible, if we felt like that feels pretty out there, kind of weird, and pretty inconsequential, we've overlooked something very important. There's a lot of ways that we can be distracted. There's a lot of ways that we can get into stupid, stupid debates. And we should avoid that. But Peter says the return of Jesus affects how we live on a daily basis. It shapes who we are as God's people. And it does it really in two different ways, in sober expectation and in eager expectation. So let's talk about the sober expectation first. As we look forward and we're reminded and taught about the coming day of the Lord, we're reminded that God's judgment is coming on sin and evil and wickedness. These are the purifying fires that he's talking, talking about coming. Christians need to flee sin and evil and not just leave that little bit or piece in their life because it's not that bad. There's an active fleeing and loathing and putting to death of sin that needs to be motivated by recognizing God's judgment is coming and I am not immune to that. If I am willfully living in sin, this should stir me up. This should poke me. This should make me feel uncomfortable. I don't know how often we hear that in churches. God's word purposefully makes God's people uncomfortable so that they might repent, so that they might walk as they're called to and find life and joy with the Lord. So there's a sobering part of this that we need as we look forward to the return of Christ. We should not and cannot make peace with sin. We flee it because we know that God's judgment is coming upon it. But then there's also an eager expectation. Look again at verse 13. It says, but according to his promise, this is the ultimate goal we're looking forward to. We are awaiting a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness or justice dwells. So as Christians, our ultimate hope is not that the world is going to be burnt up, okay? Uh, if you've seen Left Behind, maybe you've thought that. Um, the, the ultimate hope is new creation. It's God coming back to dwell with human beings, restoring, remaking them, making everything whole and beautiful again, and justice reigning instead of oppression, instead of hatred, instead of inequality. As we look forward to that day, that should encourage our hearts that's something so much bigger than a restful weekend or a great vacation or retirement. This is the ultimate hope of all humanity that everything that sucks right now will be made right in the end. That's the hope that we look forward to. So there's a sobering part of this and there's an eager, hopeful part of this. We need both. And this shapes the way we live on a daily basis. Peter says that it should motivate, verse 11, us to live lives of holiness and godliness. But then he also says that you should be waiting for, you should be longing for, verse 12, and then hastening the coming of the day of God. So why do we long for it? One, I, I can't tell you how many times I've sat across from a student and heard a story about rape or molestation. And I'm looking forward to the day when that is put away forever when that is no more. And for those of us, all of us who see the news and see refugees suffering, we see dictators up in their thrones, 
bringing misery to their peoples untouched, we should desire the day when that will be no more. But alongside that, we look forward to the day when everything's made whole, where there is no more suffering, where there is no more sorrow, where there is no more despair. This is what we look for and long for, and we hasten that day. And I'm going to suggest that we hasten it. We speed it up through prayer and sharing the gospel. And we'll get to that more later in the message. But first, we just want to step back and say, okay, so Peter has this idea that Jesus is going to return. This is going to happen on the day of the Lord. It's going to be a purifying judgment. There's going to be new creation. And he sees this as interwoven with how we live. This should motivate how we live on a daily basis. And there are some amongst us who are there, who have that in our minds and in our hearts, and we're eagerly living, we're waiting faithfully with hope for that day. Praise God for you being in our body, and I ask that God would grow you and encourage you and spur you on all the more. But if we're honest, many of us, there's a disconnect. There is a disconnect between this idea of Jesus returning, God's purifying judgment and new creation, There's a disconnect between that belief and the way that we live our daily lives. And so let's just be honest about that and just talk about why is that disconnect there for different different groups of us, and then how do we how do we press through that faithfully? So for some of us, if we think about it, we aren't living in light of Jesus' return. There's that disconnect because we don't like to think about judgment. We don't like to think about the end of all things. Like those images of God's purifying fire freaks us out. And it makes us feel uncomfortable. And I get that. But what that does is it means that many of us take our devotionals that speak encouragement to us or read parts of the Bible that seem more practical in our eyes or more refreshing in our eyes and we ignore the other parts of the Bible that God intends to use to poke us. There's a sobering part of this expectation that all of us need. And as I was saying before, it needs to remind us that we cannot make peace with sin. Sin is not just a moral list of arbitrary rules that really don't make an effect. It leads to death. It leads to corruption. It leads to misery. And it is detestable before God. When we read texts like this, we're reminded, oh yeah, that thing that I've been kind of like playing around with, that thing that I've been given a little spot in my life to, that will be destroyed. God's judgment is over that, and I need to repent and turn from that. I cannot be comfortable with that. It teaches us to flee sin, but then it also teaches us to be mindful of the people around us. How many people on a daily basis in the grocery store at your place of work in our neighborhoods don't genuinely know and love Jesus. And this is what they're headed towards, is wrath and judgment. This text reminds us that God has delayed that day out of patience and out of kindness so that we as believers might not say, oh, I'm good. Now I can kind of sit back. But so that we might be motivated to say, if I receive the mercy and patience of God, if I have been forgiven, if I have been set right with him, how can I bring that to others around me? Who are the people in my workplace 
in my family, my friends, my neighborhood that I can be faithful with. So there's this sobering part of it that we need to flee sin and we need to be conscious of the people around us who are still living in it, to share the hope of Christ with them. But then there's this eager part of this, this hopeful part of it, that we look forward whenever all things are made new, whenever God will be with us, whenever we will be made new human beings. We will see Jesus face to face and have a sweet party. And if that doesn't even factor into your picture, if you don't even have a category for that, I just want to read uh, a couple citations from texts, and I want to tell you to go home and just meditate on these things. So I'm not going to read the text, but I'm going to give you citations to build that out, okay? So Isaiah 25 is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. It talks about the sweet dinner party that God's going to throw where we get to have awesome meats and wine, and he's going to eat death. We'll be raised and everything will be made new, and that's going to be so beautiful. Isaiah 25, go read it if that, you haven't read that. Isaiah 65 and 66 is where God talks about new heavens and new earth and what that's going to look like and how things are going to flourish under the reign of Jesus upon the earth. That's Isaiah 65 and 66. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how Christians will be raised from the dead. They will be resurrected in a new body, in a new creation, living with God. If you don't have a category for being saved, being physically resurrected here on the earth, you need that. That is essentially Christian, and 1 Corinthians 15 gives a long discussion of that. Revelation 21, 22, what we're going to get into next week. Those are beautiful, poetic images of what it looks like when God comes back to dwell with us face to face. These are the things, if you don't have a category for this, you need that. Because if you don't have it, your hope will be set on things that are small. I'm looking forward to the weekend. I'm looking forward to a vacation. I'm looking forward to a pay raise. I'm looking forward to retirement. And it's so easy for these things to become idols that then govern our lives. If this is your greatest hope, you have been distracted. God has given us this beautiful concrete hope. I want you to think about, if you, if we go back to that image of engagement, if you just got engaged and your, your wedding date was a year out, how weird would it be if you only thought about being united with that person and then the marriage to follow like an hour and a half out of the 52 weeks of that year? Wouldn't that be weird? Like, wouldn't you stand there at that wedding day and be like, oh, I guess here we are. It's kind of awkward. I haven't even really thought about you. You know, wouldn't that be so weird? If we get that on a human level, why don't we get that in our relationship with the Lord? Our hearts and our minds need to be fueled by our hope. So steep your minds in it. There's a sobering part of this that's good for us. There's an eager, hopeful part of this that's good for us. We need to be having our lives shaped as we think on what's to come. Some of us don't just avoid those texts uh, because they make us feel uncomfortable. Some of us are living in outright rebellion and sin. Um, and whether we read those texts and make them uh, us uncomfortable or not, we're just not interested in changing. And I would tell you that if you read those texts and you hear these kind of words and you're not uncomfortable, that's a scary place to be you're dangerously close to having a seared conscience. When the word of God's judgment comes to you and your heart is hardened or insensitive, that's a bad place to be. God speaks to us and warns us out of mercy and kindness. 
we live here in the Bible Belt, right? Deep in the heart of East Texas. I almost wanted to sing the Yellow Rose of Texas randomly. Um, in the southern United States, and we are still kind of in this weird time zone where it's culturally acceptable, it's culturally good to be a Christian. And that's evaporating on our coast, it's evaporating elsewhere in our nation, but we're still in the thick of it here. And it's so easy for people in this region, some of us even, to claim the name of Jesus and have no shred of evidence of obedience to him, love for him, or desire to follow him. And I just want to tell you clearly, you cannot do that. The Bible calls you a liar if that's where you are. And if you don't believe me, you can go read this text. 1 John 3, verses 7 through 10. Like if you're like, who is this guy? Who is this jerk who's telling me this? Read it from the Bible. It's the word of God. It's not me. I'm not trying to tick you off. I am trying to just lay the word of God before you so that he might poke your heart and lead you to repentance and life and joy that you think you have right now, but you don't. 1 John 3, 7 through 10. Just go read that in your own time. God's patient delay is for your good. And he pokes you and he prods you to lead you to life and restoration. And then I think there's others of us, and I think this might be the majority of us, who aren't necessarily avoiding these texts. We're not necessarily living in outright sin. But we are kind of spiritually sleepwalking through life. It's this spiritual apathy and lethargy that just kind of creeps in. It like falls on us like a dust. And then we find out, like, I'm covered in this, and I have no passion for Jesus. I have no deep-seated love for God, and I have no zeal to do what he's called me to do. Many of us can relate to that if we're not there right now. This spiritual sleepwalking through life. You know, I've thought about the different places that I've lived. Um, There's a different spiritual atmosphere to different places. So I grew up a little bit of time in the woodlands, and then my wife and I were in Dallas for a bit whenever I was doing seminary. And in both of these places, there was this high emphasis on wealth as a means to attain pleasure and image. And that was like in the air. It was weird. Like if you go in a Hobby Lobby, I sort of feel like they pump estrogen into the air in that place. Like you start to feel more feminine all of a sudden. <laughs> Guys, they're like, no, I've never felt that. Um, it's the same way, spiritually speaking, in different places. If you live in a certain place, there is this weird spiritual funk that you can get into that's particular to that place. And I felt it when I lived in the woodlands. I felt it whenever I lived here, there in Dallas. But here, I think it's slightly different. I think here, it's easy just to coast and to call it a peaceful, quiet life. But in reality, there's no burning love for God or for people. There's no zeal to do his will. There's no desire that his kingdom might come on earth and to play our role in it. That's not okay. Jesus himself, over and over and over, whenever he talked about his return, said, wake up. Wake up. Because it's going to be easy for you to get distracted. It's going to be easy for you to fall asleep. It's going to be easy for you to be drawn wayward. So be alert. Stay on path. Be diligent, not by your own strength, not by your own power, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of God that fuels you, but wake up. This is Jesus' words to the church at Sardis, and they come from Revelation 3, verses 1 through 3. 
Jesus says this, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus isn't a teddy bear who's okay with whatever you do in this life. Jesus is the king and ruler of all history. He's bringing God's purifying judgment, and he's left us here with a reason and with a purpose to love God and to love the people around us and to play a role in advancing his kingdom. We don't just coast through this thing. We can be easily drawn astray, and if your eyes aren't set on him, they're set on something, and you're drifting away from the Lord. There's no neutral in this life. You're heading in some direction. All of us are. And so what does it look like for us to wait faithfully for Jesus to come? How do we long for and hasten that coming day? Just two quick thoughts. Prayer and sharing the gospel. So whenever Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, Matthew chapter 6, we just went through that in Sermon on the Mount. This is what he said. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're awesome. You're glorious. The focus starts on you. And then he says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as in heaven. How do we pray, Jesus? Well, you pray like this. You focus on the Lord and you put your heart and your mind on what he's doing and asking him to do it more here. And you're about being a part of that. That's a basic part of Christian prayer. And so even if we were to adopt praying the Lord's Prayer every day in a mindful way, the Spirit of God would be molding and shaping our hearts and our minds to realize what this is all about. This is not just about being forgiven. It's about God bringing his reign on earth and him involving us in that work. We want to be people who long for that and play a role well. As we pray, that's who we're being molded and shaped into be. But as we pray, God also responds to that. He hastens the day as we ask him, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, return. Bring justice, bring renewal, bring cleansing. That actually hastens the day of the Lord. We don't have manipulative power over God, but he does respond to our prayers. And he uses our prayers to shape us. Might we be a people who more and more long for the Lord to come, to renew all things by praying about it more? And then secondly, sharing the gospel. In every, well, in three of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, whenever Jesus is talking about his return at the end time, he has some little note about how it won't happen until the gospel is proclaimed to the nations, until all of Israel has had a chance to respond. Exactly what that means and how to interpret it, I'm not sure, but I do know that preaching the gospel plays a role. This is what we've been given to do. And so, what if just all of us thought of just one person, like a family member who's just been in that weird spot for a long time, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, that we would pray for, that we would show hospitality to, like Jesus, invite them to be a part of our table and love them, and then share the love of Christ with them. Not turning people into a project, but loving them as human beings that God desires to repent and find life. What would that look like? This Christmas season, I've been burdened by that. 
Amy and I were just thinking about it, and I realized I've been so in this church work that I don't even really know unbelievers in this town, and that's not okay. And so we're trying to take concrete steps to say, how do we get those kind of people around our table? How do we love them? How do we share the hope of Christ with them? What would it look like if we, as a community, not just looking at missionaries, not just looking at pastoral staff, but recognizing our individual role in drawing people to the Lord? May we be that kind of people. Let me pray for us. Lord in heaven, we thank you that you're merciful and gracious. We thank you that judgment has not yet come because you're patient. You've given us the opportunity to repent. There are some in our midst who even today are confronted with that opportunity. And Lord, there are people around us who need to make use of that opportunity. And so would you please strengthen us, embolden us by your spirit. Grant us all that we need. We already have that we might be faithful. Lord Jesus, teach us to long for your return by your spirit. Teach us to be people of great hope and joyful expectation as we look forward to that day whenever you cleanse evil and you bring forth what is good and holy and righteous. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.